deacons of the church. And uh, he totally forgot about the meeting, and the meeting was supposed to take place at his house. So it's summertime, he's having dinner with his family in the backyard, and he's serving his family dinner in his underwear, and the deacon walks into the backyard and sees him serving his family dinner in his underwear, okay? I don't know how the rest of that deacon meeting went, but uh, this is just not normal. And for the first time, this family thought to themselves, maybe this isn't normal. And you know, when we can go all of our lives living a certain way, never really thinking about it, never giving the second thought, just thinking that it's normal, and then all of a sudden something happens and makes us think, wait, maybe this isn't normal. See, when Jesus entered into the world, he radically challenged those he encountered. Uh, when people encountered Jesus, they thought to themselves, maybe for the first time, maybe this isn't the way things are supposed to be. Encountering Jesus made everyone think and reconsider their very existence. Maybe the way that we're living isn't normal. That's why Jesus begins his uh, ministry with these words. The time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. The word repent has long lost its meaning in the West. The original Greek uh, to this word is a compound word meaning to rethink or to reimagine. It literally means to reconsider. So what Jesus is saying is now that I have come with my kingdom into the world, you've got to reimagine everything about life itself. Reimagine your very existence about life, this world, and yes, even God himself. You've got to reimagine everything now that my kingdom has arrived into the world. And if God's kingdom has really come, we would have to reconsider everything we ever thought about existence. See, Jesus is like the deacon who walks into my friend's backyard and makes his family think, maybe this isn't normal. Maybe this isn't the way that we're supposed to live. That's exactly what Jesus does when he enters the world. His message to us in the book of Mark, his message, his central theme of all of scripture is that we need to repent or reimagine everything you ever thought about existence because God's kingdom is coming into the world. So the only appropriate way then to start your ministry is to start with these words. The kingdom of God has come near. Reimagine everything you ever thought about reality and believe the good news. Welcome to the gospel of Jesus according to John Mark. Now let's back up and start in Mark chapter 1 verse one. This is how Mark starts his account of the life of Jesus. He starts with these words, the beginning of the good news about Jesus. Mark wants his reader to be crystal clear on one thing. His gospel is about good news. Specifically, it's about the good news of Jesus. And now this isn't the opening line of, of, of Mark. This is not just some introductory statement. This is his thesis statement. This is what the, the book of Mark as a whole is about. It's about good news. It's about the good news of Jesus. It's what Jesus was about, good news. Now, the word good news comes from a Greek word, euangelion. And in your translation of the Bible, it might say good news. In other translations, it might say gospel, which is literally just another way of saying good news. But the word euangelion, good news or gospel, is not a religious word. In Mark's day, it was a political, exclusively political term. And it meant uh, exclusively, it was used to announce the enthronement of a new king or emperor. 
This was a political term, a royal term, to announce that somebody has come and they have entered to sit on the throne of their kingdom. Uh, there was rare occasions where this word was also used to announce the, the victory of a crucial battle, which meant that your king still sits on the throne of his kingdom. See, this word, if we used it today, would, would be used to announce a new prime minister of Canada. The, the word euangelion, or gospel, is an exclusively political or royal word in Mark's day to announce someone becoming king. So Mark's story, he wants us to know that Mark's story is about the good news of Jesus, but specifically it's about the good news about how Jesus became king. And now you might have grown up thinking that the gospel or good news is that Jesus died. If you believe in him, you can die and go to heaven when you die. Now that's not all wrong. We, we believe that here in part. It's not that that message is inherently wrong or it's not in the Bible. It's just not what the word euangelion means. It's not how Jesus ever uses the word, nor the, the, the authors of the gospel. They never use the word this way. Jesus exclusively uses the word gospel or euangelion in link to the kingdom of God, or in Matthew's gospel, the kingdom of heaven. So, this is the central message of Jesus. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's arriving. It's, it's here. It's coming to earth, right? And so forgiveness of sin, eternal life, all of that is part of the gospel, more as an implication, but the very heart and core of the gospel is the announcement that Jesus is king, and he is bringing his kingdom to earth. So, Let's get down to verse 2. Verse 2. Uh, as it was written in Isaiah the prophet, quote, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. Verse 3. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. So John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So, Mark starts his gospel by quoting some ancient prophecies from Isaiah and Malachi 3, okay? And his, the prophecies are about God sending a messenger to prepare the way for King Yahweh, to prepare the way for the one who, who is the, the king of creation, God himself. And so, if this is the prophecy, and if this is what John the Baptist is doing, preparing the way for Yahweh in the wilderness, then the only question the reader should be asking is, when and where will Yahweh appear? Because if we're preparing the way for him, we must expect that Yahweh himself will show up. But instead of Yahweh showing up, Jew Jesus, the Jewish carpenter from Galilee, shows up in Yahweh's place. This is not what we expect to happen in the story. See, every Jewish reader would be wondering at this point, could this be Yahweh himself? Could Mark's opening lines be true? Is Jesus the Messiah, the one who would come and sit on God's throne and bring his kingdom to earth? Is this the one that prophets spoke about? Will he come and establish God's kingdom of heaven on earth? These are the questions that Mark's original readers would have been asking. And then Jesus shocks everyone. In verse 14 and 15, it says this, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the gospel or proclaiming the good news of God. And here's his gospel. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near, repent or reimagine everything and believe the good news. See, Jesus is affirming what everyone would have thought about him. That, that 
He is the promised Messiah, the Son of God, that he has come to establish God's kingdom on earth. And this is good news. This is gospel. This is the announcement of a new king. And so Jesus then calls everyone to rethink everything they ever thought about reality. Now, we often think that Jesus' gospel announcement would go something like this. Repent, you dirty sinner, right? Repent and believe so that you can leave this terrible world and go to another one in the sky, right? Uh, But that's not at all what Jesus says. It's actually so far from the message of Jesus in all four Gospels that it's not even funny. That message is actually far closer to the Gnosticism found in the the Gospels not mentioned in the Bible. This is, the world is bad. That That is not what it says. God so loved the world that he sent Jesus into the world. The Gospel is not believe in Jesus or repent you dirty rotten sinners so you can go to some kingdom in the sky. It's there's good news that Jesus is king and he's bringing his kingdom to earth. See, we, we think that this is a message about going to a kingdom in the sky, but that's not what it says. Jesus says that it's at hand, it's coming, it's near. He, he's saying that the kingdom of God is breaking into earth. This is why Jesus in his uh, Sermon on the Mount, the very center of the Sermon on the Mount is the Lord's Prayer. And in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says these astounding words, Pray that God's kingdom would come and be established on earth and pray that his will would be done where? On earth as it is in heaven. This is not pray that you can go up to some kingdom in the clouds. It's pray that that kingdom would come here. This is the gospel. So if you want to understand Jesus, who he is, and what he came to do, you need to understand Jesus' central teaching. If you were to ask me the question, or to ask the Bible the question, what is the one thing Jesus talks about more than any other thing in all of Scripture? Maybe some of you would be like, oh, money. God always wants my money. Or maybe you think, like, oh, sex. Like, God's, like, totally against sex or whatever, right? Uh, Maybe you think it's like, oh, love your neighbors and do good to— Maybe it's the golden rule. The very thing that Jesus talks about more than any other thing in all of his messages is the kingdom of God, that God's kingdom is coming to be established on earth. We rarely talk about it today, mainly because of the Protestant Reformation. We rarely talk about this central message of Jesus, but this was his gospel, that God's kingdom is coming to earth. But the kingdom, according to Jesus, is that God's will is done on earth. See, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says, your kingdom come, and then he says a parallel line, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's saying the same thing. For God's kingdom to come on earth, His will must be done in the earth. So God's kingdom, according to Jesus, is the place or the realm in which God's will is done. And Jesus, again, prays not that we would go to some kingdom in the sky, but he prays that that kingdom would come here to earth. Are you with me? Okay. Uh, The first time we're introduced to this idea of the kingdom of God is on page one in Genesis. Uh, God, in Genesis, creates this man named Adam, and he creates a, a woman out of Adam. And he says to them in Genesis 1.26, he says, Let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness so that, here's the purpose, so that they may rule. The, the, the words used to describe the vocation of the humans was to rule, have dominion, and subdue the earth. This is all kingdom language. Who has dominion? A king. Who rules? A king. Who subdues a kingdom? A king. This is kingdom language. So God creates humans to rule over and to subdue the earth. 
We were created to rule over the creation on God's behalf. We were created to establish God's kingdom, where? On earth. Excuse me. I'll drink to that. Okay. Um, But a mysterious serpent in Genesis 3 enters into the garden. Okay, so this talking snake, which was, um, was actually a pretty common a uh, uh, myth that went around uh, the Canaanite cultures and other cultures around the, the time. And so uh, the author of Genesis in- includes this character as the, as, as the Satan, uh, or as the Satan, the accuser. And he enters into the snake and he deceives uh, the man and the woman. And what he says to them is, instead of you ruling on God's behalf, why don't you just become like God and rule the kingdom for yourself? Why don't you just take the kingdom, take the keys of the kingdom and just rule it for yourselves? Who cares about being like God? You can, you can be like God himself and rule the creation without God. And they take the bait, they're deceived, and they do this. And we see a couple chapters later, they build this kingdom known as Babylon, which becomes this, this archetype for all that is evil and wrong with the world. And we see it destroyed in Revelation, talked about all over the prophets. So what they do is they say, we don't want God to be king. We're going to follow the serpent, give allegiance to him so that we ourselves can be kings and queens of creation. So they reject God's kingdom and they build their own kingdom instead. So God, who is the gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love God that he is, gives them what they want. In Psalm 115 verse 16, we read, the highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to mankind. See, the, the humans now rule the, the kingdom of earth on their own terms. They define what is good and evil apart from God. The serpent uh, is the one they serve instead of Yahweh himself, and they unleash hellfire all over God's creation. Death, destruction, sin, and sickness all over God's creation. And this is the reality of the world we currently live in, a world marked by sin and decay where sin, sickness, and death rule reign and have dominion on God's creation. But the people of God all throughout the Old Testament look forward to a day when God would dethrone the serpent and come back as king himself to rule the creation. God would come back and he would banish the evil one, the Satan, from the earth and he would create the world as it was always meant to be in the beginning. And so when Jesus comes on the scene in in Mark chapter 1 verse 14 and 15 and he announces that God's kingdom has finally arrived. But when he does, he does the strangest thing. Jesus, at the end of Mark's gospel, is enthroned as king, king of the Jews. They put a crown on him, a royal robe, and they exalt him. But instead of exalting him on a throne, the kingdom of God comes and our king comes exalted on a cross. This is how our God chose to be exalted over king of the universe. See, Jesus is bringing heaven back to earth. This is good news. This is the gospel. He is bringing heaven here. But for him to do that, Jesus must deal with the shadowy forces of evil that have wreaked havoc on his creation and have held it uh, in, in slavery since the times of Adam and Eve. And so on the cross, Jesus defeated the power and the kingdom of, the, the, of Satan. And here he is enthroned as king of creation. See, on the cross, Jesus shows himself to be the king of the universe by dealing with the evil that threatens his kingdom and has held that kingdom in bondage and captivity. Jesus exalts himself over the powers of evil and he triumphs over them. This is how our God comes. And this is how our God came to be king. Colossians 2.15, Paul writes and says that Jesus, quote, disarmed the powers and authorities. 
he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them on the cross. What kind of king, what kind of God exalts himself on a cross? They were expecting, the people of God were waiting and expecting for a military leader who would come and violently take the kingdom of God back for himself. But instead, Jesus bore a cross and suffered crucifixion. This shows us that Jesus would rather die for his enemies than kill them. What does this say about our God? What does this say about his kingdom and the way that he goes about becoming king? Maybe many of us need to reimagine, repent, and reconsider our God all over again in light that his kingdom is breaking into the world. And the way that it broke into the world is through him being exalted as king of kings on a wooden cross. So Jesus comes and announces the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. See, God is finally returning to take back his kingdom from evil. And it, instead of a bloodbath that we expect, he bleeds out his love for the world on the cross. See, you're meant to be left asking, what sort of God is this? What sort of a king would do this? Our God is exalted as king of creation on a cross rather than a throne. Uh, so last week, Laurel and I were in Portland, okay? So like the birthplace of coffee, it's, you know, Mecca for everything that I'm into. And uh, we had a blast and uh, we were driving back and uh, it, was a, it was a short trip, but it was kind of long, like five and a half hour drive. You know, I, I drive the speed limits for you guys are like, I can go four hours. I'm like, you break the law. Um, so we did like five and a half hours and I was really tired by the end of it, okay? Um, and so we crossed the Canadian border and as soon as we get through the, the border crossing, I look to my wife and it's like, oh, we are home. Okay. And were we home? No, we were not home. We had 20 minutes of driving left. But in another sense, we were home. It was at hand. It was near. It was, it was breaking in before our eyes. It was at hand. This is what Jesus is saying when he says the kingdom of God is breaking into our world. It's at hand or it's near. Um, or in front of where we live, there's this really old tree. And this tree is right next to a sidewalk. And this sidewalk is raised in several places next to the tree, about six inches. There's just these giant, you know, uh, places where, where it's raised. And there, there's all these cracks in the concrete. And what's happening is that that tree is growing and its roots are expanding and it's pushing the world underneath the ground into the world above the ground. And the under, underground world is breaking into the world above. This is what Jesus is saying about the kingdom of God. It's breaking into our world right here and right now. Now, uh, to really understand Jesus' central teaching and Mark's central point to his book, we need to understand the central teaching of Jesus, which is the kingdom of God from another angle. Uh, so the story of the Bible begins and ends with God's kingdom on earth. In Genesis, it's a place called Eden. We've heard of this? Yeah? Okay, you're with me? Um, Genesis 2.8 says this. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east. Where's the garden planted? In Eden. And uh, there he put a man that he had formed. Genesis 2.10. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. So the, the garden is not the garden of Eden. The garden is literally in a place called Eden. Are you with me? That, that's why there's a river flowing from Eden to the garden. That's why the garden is planted in a place called Eden, right? Um, 
Eden here in Genesis 2 is the source of life for all of creation, including the, this garden. But the important thing I want you to notice is that the water is flowing from Eden to the garden. Okay, track with me just for a moment. Now, we, we see Eden. I just want to show us two other places we see Eden in the scriptures. Uh, the first is in Ezekiel. And Ezekiel sees a vision of God's heavenly temple. It says this, I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east. In both accounts, there's a description of the east. And in both accounts, the river is flowing out of something. But in the first, it's Eden. The second, it's, it's the temple. It's the same place, but something has radically shifted. The next place we see Eden is in Revelation 22 at the end of the Bible. It says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from, we would think it would say Eden, but it says flowing from the throne of God. On each side of the river stood the tree of life. This is a picture of Eden, the, the tree of life, the, the water. There's no more pain and sickness and suffering. So in Genesis, the river flows from Eden. In Ezekiel, the river flows from God's temple. But in Revelation, the river flows from God's throne. They are all describing the same place. So the question is, where is the garden? In Genesis 1, 2, and 3, where is the garden? Well, it's in Eden. Great. So is Eden on earth or is it in heaven? And the answer is yes. Eden is heaven on earth. That, that's what's happening here. That's why the, the biblical authors can describe it as a garden on earth, heaven on earth, and as God's heavenly temple, and as God's heavenly throne. So in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, there was heaven on earth. Where was God's temple? On earth. Where was God's throne? On earth, in Eden. Now, the word Eden literally means paradise. That's what the word Eden means, paradise. Um, this is the word that Jesus uses when he says to the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. We could translate that as Jesus looking to the thief on the cross and saying, today you will be with me in Eden. Are you with me? So in Revelation 21, Eden comes back to earth. God is bringing back his kingdom. He is bringing back what was in the beginning. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see that heaven and earth were one place. They, they were united. They intersected. God's space and human space were together. And at the fall, they were separated. But in Revelation 21, heaven is coming back to earth. This is what Jesus meant when he said, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe this good news. God's kingdom is breaking in. It's coming back to earth. Okay, how are we doing? Doing good. Okay, deep waters, I know. Um, we've been told in the modern West that the gospel is to repent and believe so that you can leave this world behind and go to heaven in the sky. Because in the end, God is going to burn up this world and start over and throw this world away so it doesn't really matter what you do here on earth, okay? That's a very negative caricature of the modern gospel, but that is often how we maybe not believe, but it is the way that we act. God's going to burn this world up and throw it away, and I'm going to go to heaven when I die. So it doesn't really matter what I do here on earth. Let me say this. That is not the gospel. The gospel is that God is returning and has returned to be king 
on earth, and he is bringing his kingdom here. So it matters immensely what you do here on earth. Jesus said in Revelation 21.5, I am making all things new. He is renewing them. He is not throwing them away and getting something new. He is not getting rid of the iPhone you know, 14 and upgrading for the iPhone 15. He is not throwing this world away and getting a new one. He is renewing this world. This is why here at Park Hills Church, our mission statement is to become a community of apprentices of Jesus, joining God and his renewal of all things, because we think that is what we are called to be and to do as the people of God in the world. God is not burning up this world and taking us to his kingdom in the sky. He is bringing that kingdom here on earth. And we are called as the people of God to extend God's kingdom of heaven into the world. We are called to implement the victory of the cross into the world in which we live. We are called to join God in his renewal of all things. See, God created us in the beginning to rule, to have dominion, and to subdue the world. We were created to be kings and queens of God's creation here on earth. We were to implement God's rulership and reign here on earth. And Jesus, when he comes, he says that he is renewing that human vacation. See, how do we do this? How do we join God in his renewal of all things? Put simply, we practice right here and right now what life will be like in the new creation. Or we live here and now as citizens of God's kingdom. Okay, still not tactile? Okay, follow, follow with me a little bit more. We are called to bring heaven to earth. That is our call. This is why Jesus says, seek first what? The kingdom of God. That is our primary mandate, to seek first God's kingdom. Where? On earth. The good news is that the living God is establishing his kingdom of heaven right here on earth. Heaven is breaking into our world, and he is inviting all people everywhere to be a part of it. That is what Jesus says when he says, repent and believe the good news. Reimagine your life from the ground up now that God has broken his kingdom into this world. And if God is renewing all things, our job as resurrection people is to join God in the renewal of all things. This is why Jesus tells us to pray and to live that God's will would be done on earth, that his kingdom would come to earth. The new creation is breaking in all around us. This is the dawn of a new era. This is the new creation project, and it has been inaugurated when Jesus was exalted as king of the universe on the cross. So now we are called to live as citizens of God's kingdom on earth. My allegiance is to no other flag, no other country, no other political empire, but the kingdom of God that is breaking into this world. And my friends, that is good news. So how do we do that? We look to Jesus. Look what it says in verse 16. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, also known as Peter, okay? Um, just a quick uh, thought. This whole book is actually taken as a I account witness from the perspective of Peter. So everything we're going to go through in Mark's gospel is actually told through the eyewitness account of Peter himself. Okay, just that was free. Um, as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, also known as Peter, and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. That's what you do. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I'll make, uh, send you out to fish for people. Very weird. Um, at once they left their nets and followed him. Verse 19, when he had gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, great name, 
uh, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat, poor guy, with the hired men, and followed him. So here comes this guy looking like Jason Momoa, walking on the beach down towards these four guys, and he says, come follow me, okay? I don't know if it was like the long flowing hair, the mystical eyes, or what it was, the gloves, but they just left everything behind. Their father, the business, everything. They would have been their inheritance, their loved ones, their, their hometown, everything behind, and just followed this guy. Probably like a five-minute conversation, and they leave everything behind. What would have caused them to do this? Like if some guy just walked on the beach with long flowing hair and said, come follow me, leave everything behind, you, you wouldn't do that, Right? You seriously would not do that. What made these guys do this? They probably would have taken over the family business and they leave it behind. So let's back up a few years to understand this um, to when these guys were younger, probably around the age of five, okay? So Simon Peter and Andrew and James and John, they're like five years old. Uh, at this time, five years old, they would have gone to a school at a level known as Beit Safir, okay? And uh, at Beit Safir, they would have um, enrolled in Jewish school or whatever, uh, where they would learn to read and write and all of the basics of education. Um, and by age 10, these boys would have all of the Torah memorized. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy memorized. Okay? Uh, probably King James. Okay? Uh, just kidding. Um, and if they were at the top of their class, right, if they were the best of the best, they would go on to the next level of education, which was called Beit Talmud. Um, and between, between ages 10 to 12, these young Jewish boys would learn to interpret scripture. So, so what, what does it mean? And then they would go on to memorize all of the Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi memorized, okay? Uh, most boys, trust me, most boys didn't make it to the second level of education. Most boys at like 10 or 12 went on and learned the family business. Even if you went on to, to the second level of education, you finished it, you completed it, most boys would go on and learn the family business, right? Um, so if their dad was a shoemaker, they would learn to make shoes. If their dad was, I don't know, like a ironsmith or something like that, they would make things out of metal. If he was a chef, they would learn to cook. But if their father was a fisherman, they would go to their father, an apprentice under him, to take over the family business. And what are these guys doing when Jesus sees them on the beach? They're fishing with their father Zebedee in the boat. They're apprenticing under their father. And if you were the best of the best, right? Like the best of the best of the best, and you had what it takes, you wouldn't apprentice under your father. No, instead, a rabbi would come to you and say these words, come follow me. Does this sound familiar? Come follow me. Over 20 times in the Gospels, Jesus uses the simple phrase, follow me. This would be crystal clear to those who would have heard him say this. These were the words of a master rabbi inviting you to become one of his apprentices or disciples. But Jesus doesn't call the best of the best. He calls some young guys who are fishermen learning to apprentice the father, their father's business, which means they didn't make it all the way through Torah school. These guys were high school dropouts. They didn't have what it takes. What we see here is Jesus' kingdom is for the poor, the unreligious, the uneducated, the foreigners who have no rights to God's kingdom. This is the audience that Jesus chooses to include to be his followers. And this would be offensive to the original readers because at this time, the religious thought that they were in and everyone else was out, but something has radically shifted and they need to reimagine God and the world because his kingdom is breaking in and everything is different. 
So the fact that they're fishermen meant that they don't have what it takes to become an apprentice. They don't have what it takes to become the disciple of a rabbi because they're not the best of the best. And Jesus, despite all of that, calls these fishermen to be his apprentices. They didn't have the Torah memorized. They weren't at the top of their class. They didn't have what it takes. And yet, this is who Jesus calls to be his apprentices. Jesus starts a, a kingdom movement and he does so with the least likely, the insignificant, and the unqualified. Jesus shows up and announces the arrival of his kingdom on earth, and this is who he chooses. See, what Jesus is doing here is he's looking at these men and saying, come follow me because I can make disciples even of you. In the third level of education, the main objective of an apprentice of a rabbi was to follow your rabbi around and absorb their teaching and way of life over years. And they did this because they didn't want to just know what the rabbi knew. They wanted to become like him in every way. So, um, so that one day your rabbi would look at you as his apprentice and say, go make disciples. The, the, the goal of being a disciple was so that one day you could be like your rabbi and be a rabbi yourself with your own set of disciples. Jesus is creating here a group of disciples who would live as citizens of his kingdom here and now on earth. Jesus is inviting these men to join his school of apprenticeship, to learn his way of life, to learn his teaching, to, to actually learn everything they possibly could learn from him so that one day they could be just like him. And the crazy thing is he invites you as well. The word Christian shows up in your Bible a total of three times, always negatively, and never from the mouth of Jesus. And yet this is the dominant word that we use to describe a follower of Jesus. However, the New Testament uses uh, the word disciple 269 times to describe somebody who follows Jesus. In other words, the invitation is not to believe a set of doctrines in your head. The invitation of Jesus is actually to follow him and apprentice his way of life, apprentice his teaching so that one day you could actually become like him. This is why Jesus says a, a disciple or student is not above their teacher, but their goal is so that one day they could become like their teacher. See, the good news is that God is bringing his kingdom of, of heaven to earth, and he wants to start that kingdom project with you. He wants to start with you because God knows that in order to get the world right, he's got to get you right. In order to get the sin and mess out of the world, he wants to get the sin and mess out of you. And you might be here t this morning, you feel unqualified, you feel like the disciples, I'm a dropout, I don't have the Torah memorized, I'm not a key candidate for an apprentice. And Jesus says, don't worry, with you, it is impossible. With God, all things are impossible. Jesus is not inviting you to become a Christian. He's inviting you to become a disciple, an apprentice of his way of life and teaching, to live as a citizen of his kingdom here on earth. Because the good news is that when the humans are back and put right, the project can get back on track. So when people say to me, there's no point in working for justice in the world, or when they say it doesn't really matter how we treat the world and the planet because God is just going to throw it away one day and take us to heaven, when people say that we must protest and say Jesus has come back as king and his kingdom is breaking in all around us and we must reimagine everything in light of this coming kingdom. The power of evil has been defeated on the cross. The good news has come true. And our job is to become disciples or apprentices of Jesus and his kingdom. Our job is to live as he lived, 
to understand what he taught, and not only to understand it, but to become it. We are to disciple or apprentice his way of being in the world. And after three and a half years, Jesus sends these apprentices out, and he makes them rabbis, and he says to them, go and make disciples. When he says that, the language he is actually using is the same language God used in the garden to send out Adam and Eve, go and multiply, fill the earth, subdue and rule over it. Now he says, he says, go, multiply disciples, rule over it and subdue the earth. He is sending them out as disciples to, to extend his kingdom into the world. Guys, this is the gospel. The kingdom of heaven is breaking in. The, the kingdom of darkness is fading away and God's kingdom is breaking in all around us. Uh, a few years ago, I did a young adults event and it was an event for our church. And um, I, I went out and I, I bought kombucha and uh, I left all the kombucha in the kitchen instead of putting it in the fridge, okay? Um, big mistake. And so I'm sitting on my desk, and I'm hearing all of these small explosions coming from the kitchen, okay? So this stuff was still fermenting and it was releasing gas and it was causing the cans to explode, right? The, the, the stuff that was in the cans was, was leaking out into the world. It was exploding out into the world. That is what the church is called to be. In a couple chapters, Jesus will tell story after story after story about how the kingdom of God is breaking in all over the world. He will, he will even demonstrate it through healing and casting out demons. These aren't just random things that Jesus is doing. He's demonstrating that the kingdom of God is breaking in. And that, my friends, is what the church is called to be. This is the gospel of Jesus. And that's why at PKC, we invite people to live in community as we follow a way of life together. Our way of life consists of weekly practices from the life of Jesus himself that we embody to become like him as his apprentices. Um, and so our job as disciples in community is to practice Jesus' way of life and to extend the kingdom of heaven into earth. This is why starting at the end of this month, all of our communities will be involved in the renewing of all things. So certain communities will uh, uh, make meals and uh, connect with refugee families in the city of Surrey. Other uh, communities will uh, connect with families who are on the lower side of income in the city of Langley and, and provide meals for them and build relationships with them because we believe that the kingdom of heaven is breaking in and we want to join God in his renewal of all things. And if that is true, my friends, we must rethink our lives all the way over again from top to bottom. We need to repent or reimagine everything now that God's kingdom is breaking into the world. So if you're with me, and I believe you are, if you're with me and you believe that Jesus has called us to be the church and to be his followers or apprentices, and you believe that Jesus' kingdom is breaking into the world and he is inviting you to be a part of it, then I invite you to join a community this January. I invite you to join us as we join God in the renewal of all things. We do three, three simple things. We join together um, in the evenings and we, we have a meal and we discuss how we're actually apprenticing Jesus. We're actually following him, embodying his way of life. And the third thing we do is we meet, we apprentice Jesus and we join God in the renewal of all things. So if you're into that at any level and you believe the kingdom of God is breaking in all around us and you want to be a part of it, that you're like, you know what? This has just been something I believed in my head. And now I'm like reimagining my life from the ground up all over again and repenting now that the kingdom of God is at hand. I invite you to join a community this January and be a part of the renewal 
of all things. Are you with me? You can scan this right here and join us. It's going to be great. Um, let me pray for us.